coming up on Art Palace. Yeah, we live in a meme era, and, and, and memes function on subtext over text, right? There may be a text on there, but that's just for an orientation point. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Evan Torner, professor at University of Cincinnati. Evan and I discuss the 1988 film, They Live, as a part of the museum's Hank Willis Thomas All Things Being Equal film and discussion series. You can learn more about the series at cincinnatiartmuseum.org slash HWT film series and also find a video of this conversation there. Hi, I'm Russell Eyrig, the Associate Director of Interpretive Programming at the Cincinnati Art Museum. And I'm Professor Evan Torner at the University of Cincinnati, uh, specializing in German and film media studies, science fiction, and critical race theory. And today we're going to be talking about John Carpenter's film, They Live, from 1988. So this discussion is programming and dialogue with the exhibition Hank Willis Thomas, All Things Being Equal, which is on view at the Cincinnati Art Museum from September 4th through November 8th, 2020. So the reason we're talking about this today is um, actually Hank uh, Willis Thomas, the artist, uh, listed this as a film that let me let me read his quote here. Uh, These films impacted my life and whole understanding of the power of art to shape our notions of the truth and therefore reality. So this was one of the of several films that he picked out. And that was what he said. So uh, to give like a quick summary of the movie, um, this is a film. Well, actually, do you want to do you want to give it a try? Sure, sure. So uh, John Carpenter in 1988 uh, made a science fiction film um, uh, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David, um, both of whom have have have. semi-professional professional wrestling backgrounds rowdy roddy piper being one of the the key heels of worldwide wrestling um and it's a science fiction film about um uh more or less uh working class people discovering that the yuppies of the 80s are mostly aliens who have then been buying off um uh, you know basically getting all these other humans to sell out their species and have put a massive virtual reality simulation over um, a pile of subconscious messaging in advertising and in television, among other places, um, to, to disguise the fact that, that that they're aliens. And of course, you know, a key is um, that about half an hour into the film, um, Nada, uh, played by Roddy Piper, uh, discovers this, these pair of sunglasses that he can then use to see the truth. And the truth is bleak and horrible and uh, gives him the license to start shooting uh yeah particularly uh you know aliens and those alien others which it then gets more complicated because there are human accomplices and so it's not quite as clear who is the um who is the villain so i i I don't want to go too much into into the plot details but effectively um 
all of the heroes have to martyr themselves in the end in order to achieve what they want, which is to destroy the transmitter, uh, spending this false consciousness, um, as Marx would say, uh, all over the globe. And, and suddenly the people wake up and see um, this particular uh, all, all the aliens and all of the the uh, BS subliminal messaging, um, and it it sort of ends on a cliffhanger. What what will humanity do now that the veil has fallen? And one thing uh, I I really love about the the sunglasses that he puts on is it's a really clever thing that John Carpenter is doing, which is that when he puts the glasses on, everything becomes black and white. Um, so you immediately sort of know also when when the we're seeing things through. Uh, Roddy Piper's eyes and when we're or through the glasses and when we're not. And it's it's a really clever thing. But I think it also makes things extra that bleakness you described. Um, it makes it extra bleak and kind of uh, it also kind of harkens back to like 1950s and uh, sci fi for me as well. Like some of the look of the. There's like these little flying uh, saucery type uh, drones that fly around. And, and it, when I see those in black and white, it feels very like early sci fi films to me. It, it's also a film about an interracial friendship, uh, you know, specifically between um, uh, Nada and Frank. Uh, Frank played by Keith David, who you also saw in John Carpenter's The Thing and whose voice would later on to be found and spawn in the HBO spawn series. You know, he has a classic uh, baritone. Um, Keith David really shines out as this, this figure of integrity who is um, a family man uh, that, that comes into contact with this drifter um, who, who seems to have bought into the system. And um, I would say, uh, Keith David's character already knows that he he's a black man in America in the 1980s. He knows he's gotten a bad bargain, but he's made the bad bargain because he's got kids and a family. And and uh, and, and and so he's he's like, I've, I, I, I'm working this crappy job and living in a homeless uh, in, encampment, which is later bulldozed. Right. But of course, um, th this kind of temporary utopia that they're able to go to um, in the homeless encampment where they're needs are provided for they have community um is interrupted not only with this tv that is you know both broadcasting the evil signals and also hacked by by some by this resistance group that's trying to um you know wake up everyone up um this utopia is, is directly destroyed by police violence. And of course, this police violence is then mapped on to, you know, race, race relations in, in, you know, the, the 1980s. And the, the key sequence of the film is, of course, the six minute uh, alley brawl in which, you know, uh, uh, Nada uh, wants Frank to put on the glasses, you know, right? This is literally yeah. an enlightenment moment. Why won't Frank accept his enlightenment and this is racially charged right the white dude trying to hand a black guy who already knows what situation he has in life um the, the these you know glasses that that attune him to you know pretty much horrific class warfare uh perpetrated by aliens on the human human species and uh why why are we you know in six minutes in this uh you know jeff imada choreographed beautiful wrestling alley match i mean for for me it's one of the queerest moments in the film because there, there's a moment where it's just like no th these two this is like sex this is they they are you know 
uh, having something more than <laughs> than a fight over just just who will put on the glasses. This is this is about showing mutual affection and care and boundaries for each other. And and I, I think is a very very interesting um, uh, you know relationship that that develops there and that 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 also um, is I think one of the more progressive uh angles and otherwise kind of a misogynistic film <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah they there's something also I, I love that after that fight they go they go get a hotel room together <laughs> exactly yeah they, they, they have the hotel fight and then and then they have the awkward hotel room and and all of the gay subtext is right there like it's absolutely yeah. right there um and, and and of course the science fiction plot interrupts oh no that the, they're just going to the hotel room so they can figure their stuff out and you know right. and if the plot line allows us not to worry too much about the homosexual undertones but it's totally there yeah speaking of that it's something i noticed and, and we're kind of hopping around the movie a little bit so uh, sorry but um that was kind of something also i was sort of noticing like a lot of 80s movies are are pretty notoriously homophobic um and i was kind of surprised that to me like i don't know if i'm just seeing things where they're not there but i was totally like amazed that it seemed like an intentional choice to have holly's neighbors be this like gay couple um and i was like oh that's like a really just specific thing that I don't know, like any other way to interpret it as, as that, but it wasn't like, it was pretty non-judgmental. It was just kind of like, yeah, that's her neighbors. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting and something you just don't see in like a 1980s film usually. Well, this is, this is a pretty good portrayal of Los Angeles in, in my opinion, right? It really is a Los Angeles film yeah. and, and, and don't trying to cut between the different parts of Los Angeles. Um, you know, both the slums, the paranoid delusion, uh, you know, dark corners, as well as the Hollywood Hills suburbs and, um, and you, you get and of course, the, the, the media broadcasting institutions themselves. So uh, you get a, a nice cross section of the city. But interestingly, I think if you look at another dimension, which is not even visual, the music is John Carpenter, because John Carpenter is, is usually the one writing his own music. Um, you have this kind of uh, blues tune that 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 mm-hmm. accompanies throughout just a, a real quiet bass line. And that, that, that goes from the very beginning through the, the through much of the film, which aligns us with, you know, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the drifter, working class guy. And uh, the interesting I, I think I think what's very interesting is that, that the film, you know, strongly aligns us with this kind of working class view of of reality. Um, so that then, you know, we have our allegiance with them against the yuppies later on. And then I think that subverted at the end, like maybe we're the yuppies uh, with that with that surprise ending. And we can maybe look at that later on. So I guess like I know you you just sort of looked at Hank's work, uh, you know, for the, sort of experienced it for the first time just a few, you know, a little bit ago. So I, were the, was there anything immediately connections you made between the film when you looked at that work? Um, yeah, I, I, I like to, again, look at the. Althusserian distinction between ideological and repressive state apparatus from the 70s, which is to say a repressive state apparatus is the police and the military. And you see that in the work, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the, the police, you know, if, if you look at um, the, the work Public Enemy, Black and Gold from 2017, 
right? That this is um, an image of a child, black child, uh, you know, faceless looking back, uh, scared at, at these advancing soldiers. And um, that right there is the repressive state apparatus. Um, and we see that in They Live, right? I mean, I, I think the storming of the uh, resistance hideout sequence is horrifying. And and very realistic, right? I mean, you have to think John Carpenter is a horror director, and he's doing the horror of of both black experience of this country, and you know, communist uh, gay experience, right? Of getting your club busted up, or 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 even you know, harkening back to other fascist regimes, right? You know, the wall explodes, and they begin to murder people willy nilly. All of the protagonists make it out. Um, with with their various guns and tech, because it turns into an action movie at that point, really, um, if it hasn't already. But the it, it is horrifying moment, and I think that 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 um, you know specter of police violence from the repressive state apparatus is is there, but it doesn't function as well as the ideological state apparatus, which is the you know, which is the obey signs, and 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 Hank is also dealing with that, right? So uh, Hank Hank Willis Thomas has has. Um, you know, a uh, Nike symbol uh, tattooed on on, on um, a black person's head, who who is then uh, who's then faceless, right? And and so there's a corporate branding, an idea of of selling out to uh, corporations, to sports, uh, to empty phrases and slogans, and um, and 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 that these work in concert, right? So that you've got the violence apparatus over here, and then the media and um, and sort of the ideology of the state, which can be propagated through the church, uh, through uh, schools and other other um, other organs, right? So so they they work in tandem, and of course that we also see that, and they live, right? You both the obey. Uh, billboards and and the television, as well as the cops who are there if you get out of line. Yeah, I was thinking about the the messaging that comes across. And one of the things I love about it is how you'll see the images and then the sort of hidden message once he puts on the glasses. And they're usually pretty related uh, to what the image was. Um, and it's sort of about the the kind of like subtext that's being communicated. Um, another uh, body of, of Hank's work is all about taking advertising uh, that mostly features black people and removing the the sort of text and only letting the subtext exist. So like, he'll you know, remove all of the digitally take out the actual advertisement. So you don't really know necessarily what was being advertised. And you can just sort of sit with those images and see what this is saying. Um, the that was sort of a response. The the Nike uh, branded image was sort of his first uh, phase of those of the branded series where he was sort of making images in the style of advertisement. And then he thought, like, well, let's go and just let's look at the real deal here. Um, and so he began taking those and just removing elements of it. And they sort of really reveal so much when you look at them without being distracted by, you know, the whatever cigarettes being advertised, you realize like what is really being sold to you. Um, and I, I was just thinking about that as I watched it uh, this time with the idea of sort of like dog whistle politics in mind, especially the way things are said um, without saying the thing, <laughs> you know, like, well, we didn't really say it, but you didn't have to say it because everybody got the message and it was communicated quite clearly.
Yeah, we live in a meme era and, and, and memes function on subtext over text, right? There may be a text on there, but that's just for an orientation point. The emotional core is is going to be in, you know, the content and its sort of overall disposition. And and um, if you if you bring uh, American race politics into it or even, you know, global race politics. And I'm thinking of theorists such as W.B. Du Bois and Franz Fanon and the idea of the double consciousness, a very old thought in modern um uh african and 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 afro-european african-american thinking right where where uh the, the the colonizing process um you know uh, basically asks you every day to continuously sell out who you are and to, to and to sell yourself out to to what you think you know, you, you have you have to live two lives, both a life that lets you survive, which is an inauthentic one, and your authentic one, which shrivels because you've got the second life. And and so the uh, what, I, what I think is interesting also about this, this subtext is it comes back to, um, you know, the American, the, the unique, the uniquely American um, advertising and propaganda um, industry that that you know, I mean I, I, whenever we say word propaganda we often think of Nazi and Soviet examples and don't think deeply about uh, America's innovation in that particular category. Um, Edward Bernays being the most important figure on that front. He's Freud's nephew. Comes over. Uh, he's, been, he's raised in in New York and and yeah, uh, uh, he's the guy who who. Uh, uh, advertise women smoking through the suffragette movement. He's the one who did propaganda for United Fruit. Um, he he he's able to sell everything from products to political campaigns to you know pretty harsh and harmful ideas. And uh, Bernays, you know, work is of course premised on Freud. So so we we are not conscious consumers of ads. We are subconscious consumers. We we get the emotional content. We, we we get the point from an, an immediate um, read of the uh, visual image way before we we interpret the text or something. So if you've got this text that's stark in there, it says obey, or you know, in in Hank Willis Thomas's oeuvre, um, his his I am Amen work, right? At subverting that that very I would say um, American advertising position of. Uh, of you, you put an evocative image or or something that's saying something subtextual, and then the text, you know, is 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 oh by the way product. I mean, you think about any Super Bowl advertisement, right? You know, thirty seconds of someone like sitting in an office, then violent act happens to them, then product. Like that was, you know, that was very prevalent in in uh, in, in about a decade worth of advertising. Now, why do that, right? Well. The, the 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 product is, is is selling the product is supposedly the point but the sub subtext is even more important than anything i had this sort of revelation when i went to the world of coke museum in uh atlanta and before you can go into the sort of museum proper they're like okay we're gonna sit you you're gonna go into this theater and we're gonna show you a five minute film about coke and i thought okay this is probably gonna be about you know the history of coca-cola like i'm going to begin in the you know turn of the century and it's good you know that's what i was imagining and instead it starts and it's this you know basically a five minute advertisement in which all of these families are sort of doing different 
things like, oh, somebody's uh, coming home from the military and somebody's having a big hockey game, a couple's going on a hot air balloon and he's ready to propose for her. And they're all kind of building to this big moment of like the proposal, the walk in the door. And you don't exactly know what's going on in each of these scenes, but they're sort of intercut um, and they're all going to come together. And so then you watch all these things happen. And then at the very end, it's like Coke. <laughs> and you're like, what? That wasn't about Coke at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like sitting there like, what am what am I witnessing? This is so insane. This is amazing. And then they go, OK, now you go into the museum. There's like no explanation of it. And so then you go into the museum and I see this like really early Coke ad and it's a girl ice skating, you know, in in the you know 1910s or whatever. And it just like drink Coke. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's this is all they've ever done. And it's like their genius move is they don't try to sell you the product through the advertisement. They're actually selling you something else. And the Coke is just, you know, they're selling you an idea of happiness. And then if you happen to drink the Coke, that's that's great. It really actually I don't know if they intended it to be a lesson in that, but it, it was a lesson in that for me. <laughs> yeah. And I think they live is is and and um and Hank Thomas's work are, are along this these 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 similar lines, which is like, well, there is an actual message here, and that is, you have no agency. You are, you know, like like the the world is beset by violence, not only literal violence, but also this kind of symbolic violence. And we agree to it every day. And 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 it takes these manifestations in all these different forms. But the most important thing is the disposition that you go in to encounter it so that then, you know, you got the Coke ad that then it's like, OK, well, the wallpaper is good. OK, there's there's the Coke, right? This billboard may say obey underneath it, but I can unsee it and 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 see the, the product. Right. Because then ultimately I want to think I do have agency. One of my favorite moments uh, just in those like the relationship between the image you're seeing and then the sort of um, hidden message is uh, in the in the very first scene where he puts on the glasses and he's walking around the city and he stops at a newsstand. I noticed in this viewing there's a magazine behind him and the actual head like one of the actual headlines on the magazine said it's a golf magazine and it says let TV teach you. And, you know, it's like that could have been one of the the sort of hidden messages, but there it is. And it's like an actual magazine cover from the eighties. And you're like, Oh wow. Like some of this is, is so direct. It's, it's kind of insane. <laughs> and, 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 you know, those who are really within a certain school of marketing, you know, they, they are reading psychoanalysis. They are doing focus groups in which they, they hand crayons to adults and say, draw whatever, you know, draw happiness, draw you know, curling up on a rainy day. Right. And they just see what they produce. Right. And, and then you, you have maybe three or four dozen focus groups doing these inane creative activities and it costs quite a bit of money. Right. To do that, the, the, this, this kind of extensive market research. But then you can bubble it up and let all your creatives you know, work with this material and really feel like you are tapping into some sort of subconscious vein. And, um, you know, like I said, like this is pervasive in American advertising, but particular in the 80s, what happens is the financialization of everything that now, you know, we're still, still seeing the effects of 40 years later. 
you know, the eighties definitely produced our president. The eighties definitely produced our, um, our, our current financial system in which, you know, you have millions of microtransactions every second happening just between computers and sort of on top of this layer of incomprehensible economic activity is, you know, the real economy and, uh, the, uh, the masters of this are these, you know, in the eighties, the, these yuppies, right. The people who kind of understand what's going on, right. People are being sold, um, empty bills of goods or, or, or basically, um, being, uh, like, like the sellouts in the banquet scene, right. But who, who are, who are basically trading the entire future of humanity or the sustained like human project in which we take care of each other for these stock bonuses. Right. And, and uh, that, you know, so that that's mirrored in the film, but then, then, you know, you, you, you get that also in the eighties reality. And of course, right-wing people have uh, interpreted this film as, uh, Oh, the, and these are all the liberal messages that are underneath all right. of the, and, uh, and Carpenter came flat out and said, no, I meant the yuppies. I meant the corporate hacks. Uh, he's, he's very direct uh, that, that, that he said, this is a class a film about class. And you have some working class heroes who have to take on the corporations who really are evil in, in not only in evil in the way that, you know, we think they are, but they are, they're evil because they're aliens and they, and they're buying, buying out humans at an incredibly cheap rate. And I think, I think that cheapness of, of the selling out in the eighties is, is where uh, Carpenter is going with the film. Yeah. I, I worried about that. Actually, I was thinking about the movie before I rewatched it this time. And I was wondering about that um, because I think it's a risk that a lot of satire takes um, is that it can be really easily misinterpreted by people. It's kind of like that Archie Bunker effect where, you know, half the audience is going like, oh, my gosh, Archie Bunker, what a jackass. And then the other half is like, that's right, Archie, you tell it like it is. Um, and so you have that like two people able to kind of see the same thing for different reasons. And I had heard that there were even, you know, like neo-Nazi groups who were really into they live and trying to show that, whoa, this is just like a Jewish conspiracy. And that was, you know, really, really upset Carpenter over that. Um, so it is a risk I think you take when you make something like this, that it can be kind of everybody fears the authority when it's not on their side. Right. right. So like, you know, uh, you could just as easily uh, watch this from a really right wing perspective and be like, ah, it's just like the Obama administration. Right. Oh, yeah. um, so I think that's where like it, it, it can be a little dodgy because everybody can see it, see it and everybody can feel disenfranchised at some point. So, yeah. And, and, and I would say the 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 rights main victory in the last 20 years has been total co-optation of every possible leftist uh, tactic or talking point to serve, you know, a very specific role and everything from identity politics to uh, to to the substance of left wing organizing or kind of anarchist resistance. Yeah. And I mean, actually, I think that's something I do like about the movie that it, it I think there is some nuance to it as well, because I think like the bank scene in particular, like I I think it's very easy to imagine how just a person who's going to the bank is reading this scene as well. Like there's the the level that, uh, you know, he uh, that Roddy Piper's character is 
experiencing it where he sees all these horrible monsters and shooting them. And then there's a person who's just watching this madman bust in and murder a bunch of people. And it's the same thing with the office scene. Like later, you, it's the same kind of like, oh, this is t- kind of terrifying for them. Um, and I think I like that he leaves that in there because it makes it a little uncomfortable and a little ambiguous instead of just uh, all the way. Oh yeah, I think that uh, the, the shooting in the film is quite ambiguous, and and, and again, again, the ending is partially uh, abrupt and unsatisfying because we're, we are we are partially complicit in this, right? It, it, at, at one, as soon as uh, you know, Nada as Roddy Piper's character is able to sort the world into good and bad, which again, as we know from the accomplices later on, like that doesn't work. Um, right. It, it, so, so Carpenter is being like, okay, I know you think, you think you, if you just shoot all the capitalists, it'll work, but it doesn't quite work that way, right? So, so, right. so that, that 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 is one subliminal sort of plot line. There is is uh, yes, you know, violence um, works in the short term, but not remotely in the long term. Um, you know, the, the, because not only are these aliens the owners of everything but they're also the drones they're also people hanging out in the bar they're everybody right the, the aliens are, are fully uh integrated into society and 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 so this kind of genocidal tactic of just shooting whichever alien you see is not going to work and and so of course he realizes this and says okay we need to go after the source of the signal right because of course there's a hollywood MacGuffin that says if you just get the MacGuffin, then everything is going to solve itself and the solution is much stranger, right? It, 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 what it does is it, it collapses the signal. Then people all wake up simultaneously, and 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 then then you got the the, the news anchors who are who, who yeah. are kind of shocked that they're like ugly and on the screen like this. And then we we cut to the bar where there's just a regular guy having a drink. And then, of course, most shockingly, uh, it, it, a woman having sex with her partner. Um, and her, her, her par- partner, uh, he says, well, what's, what's wrong, honey? And that's it. Right. Yeah. So we don't get this kind of revolution, which is actually what happens in the story that this is based on, right. That eight o'clock in the morning is, is, is the title of the short story where, uh, not a, you know, um, uh, both destroys the signal, but he is scheduled by basically the aliens to die of a heart attack at eight o'clock in the morning, the next day. And he does because he, he still can't escape the system, but then people overthrow the aliens. Yay. And John Carpenter says, nah, nah, things are weirder. (laughs) Yeah. I love, I I love the ending. I mean, I love the idea of the ending. I I don't know if I love the actual final, (laughs) that final scene with the, the lady, because it's the only nudity in the movie. And it is so, and it's not that it's nudity that bothers me. It's that it's like framed, like it's out of porkies or something. It's just so, it's so weird. And it just seems very out of tone of the rest of the movie. Um, then at the same time, part of what I like about this movie is it is a little schlocky at times. Like I love that it's, doesn't take itself super seriously. And I think that actually helps the medicine go down a little bit. You know, I, I, I spent this last time watching it, thinking a lot about Roddy Piper's performance and what, what I think about it. Like, is this good? Is he bad? Like, I don't know. I mean, I came to the decision that I think he's really quite good in some scenes, uh, usually when he, that don't involve him opening his mouth and the minute he has to deliver lines, it's, it's pretty, pretty, 
pretty flat and he particularly he, de- he delivers his uh, sort of action movie catchphrases in the funniest, flattest way possible. Mama don't like tattletales. Um, but then at the same time, I don't know if I want somebody to make those lines sound cool because I think that make that actually makes the movie more interesting that this person is sort of like it's like a kid just reciting um, what they've seen on TV or something. It's it's it, it comes across as so weird that it's actually makes the movie better to me than if somebody was like, you know, really giving it their best hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> yes, it, it's anti-naturalistic in a way. I mean, you know, you, you it both takes a side of the working class and then it's not like, but then it's not like we're going to portray an authentic por- portrait. Of, you know, sorry, we're not going to, we're not going to do an authentic portrait of the working class. We're going to do a kind of satire, uh, but, but you get it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking too of of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead Two, which came out just a a year before this, or um, Naked Lunch by Cronenberg Two, which is like 1990, I think. So there, 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 this is a complex of films in which you know you have this sort of solipsistic guy figuring out how things really are, and then you know performing acts of violence but then you know it's a a satire and and not necessarily celebrating or or condoning them but more being like you know what what a weird psychological state we're all in and and i i i think that um that that insecurity at the end of the 80s is not recognized as much i think people are now you know especially given how um, how 2020 feels people look back at these times as if they were stable and of course they're not i mean the, the savings and loan uh, corruption in the late 80s which happened you know during the production of this film um or right before it um you know exploded uh banking right and and consolidated banking in the same way that we're seeing consolidations happening due to the coronavirus and that's even mentioned in the film when when uh, he goes to the unemployment office and uh the woman at the unemployment office says you know uh 13 banks have just closed this week right and that's of course referring to the savings and loan scandal basically saying like there's no money and there's no money in the system there's no jobs and since there's no jobs you you're you're off to fend for yourself buddy that, that even though we say, oh, well, the, the boomers had a good and, you know, there were still social safety nets and things like, like their, their tents to city still got bulldozed. And, uh, you know, the, the precarity in the film is still pretty stark. And uh, if you look at a lot of other alternative cinema of, 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 of sort of the American canon, you see that poverty and that desperation right away. It's a, it's a American uh, epic rather than, than, you know, an ice, something isolated to this year or the, you know, post 2008. The last time I watched this movie was I'm guessing in the early two thousands, I was trying to remember exactly how long it had been, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I watched it on a, an actual physical DVD that came to me via mail. <laughs> so back when Netflix still did that. So that's how at least somewhere in that, that ballpark, um, maybe 2008 or something like that. And, um, I, I definitely, viewed it very differently, you know, this time and and specifically because I was viewing it through the lens of Hank's work, I couldn't help but, you know, pull out a lot of things about, you know, ideas about race in the movie. Um, I heard you, you know, you said something about that earlier. Is that something that's always existed for you in the movie or something you've begun to see more recently? 
you know, I watched uh, the movie as a Keith David fan when, when, you know, I mean, I was already, as I watched the Spawn, the HBO Spawn animated series, which is just absolutely stunning. And, um, and then of course he was in Requiem for a Dream as Little John, very, very iconic and disturbing um, uh, performance there. And of course uh, his role in The Thing. And um, so, so, um, my my sense is is that uh, he he gives a startlingly moving performance for a B movie, and that then he is you know capped in the head uh, shortly before the end of the film, so that Nada can become sort of this white savior. And he's of course so you have a dual white savior action, or Nada first you know saves him from the ignorance of the. Uh, you know, of, of the mundane with the sunglasses. And of course, that that's that's that first battle. But then so Holly then uh, kills him. But there's no like backstory about is she a collaborator? Like, what is she? And so it just she just seems like malicious. Um, <laughs> I took it. I, I guess I, I interpreted as she she was like a double agent, you know, right. because at the time when, you know, we see her appear at the like, you know, little community meeting or whatever that's happening. Um, we kind of feel like, Oh, she, she's a genuine, you know, she's had her eyes open because he left the glasses there. She discovers them. Oh, it's like, you've been, you've, you're sort of following this story going, Oh, okay. She put on the glasses. Now she realizes she's, she's joining them and she tells them straight up. Like it's not there. There's nothing wrong with the signal from cable 54. It's not coming from, the station so she straight up lies to them at that moment so then once we get there we realize like oh no she she was playing them the whole time and 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 i think it's sort of after after the meeting and everything where we first see that there are these like human collaborators who are aware of it at the banquet scene so then it kind of i think makes her role in that make more sense once you sort of realize that um I love her in this. I think she's she's so fun. I can't remember that actress's name. Um, I also just know her as Evil Lynn from Masters of the Universe. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 as soon as you see her eyes, you're like, oh, it's Evil Lynn from Masters of the right. Universe. Yeah, I, like, yeah. Talkingly blue eyes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she's I, so great. I mean, she's so good at like communicating. um this person who's like obviously freaked out by this man who has kidnapped her and, and like she's, but she's also always in control of the situation. Um, and it's one of my favorite things about this movie. And in that scene with her and, and, and Roddy um, in the, in her, her house where I'm actually more afraid for him because I can tell like she knows what she is doing and she is 100% smarter than him. <laughs> like she, yeah. is, she has the upper hand and she knows it. Um, and she, you're just like ready for her to strike. And when it happens, it is so good. <laughs> So like, <gasps> but, but you know, you can, you can read it as this class allegory and Meg Foster is the actress's name. Yes. Uh, 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 so, so you basically have, have a situation where you have the you have, uh, a white working class and a black working class guy who, you know, form an alliance um, and, and that the uh, alliance that produces the glasses. The resistance movement is also multiracial, right. um, and 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 in much more sort of cross class. There's various people from various walks of life: intellectuals, workers, 
religious figures all uh, coming together to to face this threat, right? Which is, you know, this kind of utopian community uh, idea of this is what resistance looks like. And of course, that that community is blown up or, or, or more or less totally annihilated. And these two working class guys are um, are, you know, dealing with their homoerotic whatever, but, you know, also, um, you know, for, forming their own battle team um, and, and, and means of confronting their, their, their personal problems, their external problems all together. They're figuring out the, the nature of the world together. I mean, that's intoxicating. And then, of course, the problem is this woman <laughs> is still in Nada's mind. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, he trusts her enough to let her betray them. And, of course, she's like the middle class, right? So the working class is going along and then... The problem is the middle class keeps, you know, siding with the wrong, you know, they, they keep siding against their class interests. What are they doing? And, and, and I, I, I see that as, as sort of classical, classical Marxian idea of, of it. But uh, then, um, you know, the, the, the ending is not Marxian at all. It is, it's, it's a, a different construct. We, we, we have a, a martyrdom, you know, Jesus on the cross <laughs> or, or, or rather a, uh, Roddy Piper dying in front of the the satellite, having saved everybody, um, right. and, and and with with disconcerting effects. So it doesn't produce necessarily a class revolution. What it means is that okay, we're all in this complicated mess together, and it'll probably be more of the same now that the veil has fallen. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the the sort of very. It seemed very consciously uh, multiracial in the in those. Uh, the camp and in the the resistance group, um, I, I was again because I was looking at it through this lens. I was sort of being I was very aware of that this viewing in a way that I don't think I had been in the past. Um, and you know, I was talking about imagining like, you know, w about Roddy's casting in this movie. And I started kind of being like, well, why isn't Keith David the lead in this, you know? Um, and it was like a thing I kind of started imagining, like, how would that movie play differently if Keith uh, David was the lead? Um, he's certainly the most capable actor in the movie, right. I think, who who could clearly handle it. Like, he's the best. He's the most fun to watch. He's like so good in every scene. Um, and but it is interesting because, I mean, I think. I would have perceived it immediately as a movie about race if Keith David was the lead. And that just kind of goes to show how ingrained the idea that whiteness is default. Right. Um, you know, like if I see Roddy Piper in this movie, I can interpret it all as like, oh, it doesn't necessarily have to do with race. The minute the the actor would if the lead actor was black, I would immediately think about it as race related. And I think it would be perceived differently by the public, too. I think something like the bank scene would be would play very differently if Keith David walked in with a gun and started blowing away white people. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the. Um the, the the fantasies hinge on on you know kind of a, a strong allegiance with this white male uh uh working class character who then um you know is so then keith david can be like you know his his uh you know sidekick with heart and uh, which, which which is problematic but it, it would have been even more problematic if keith david had been you know not only the lead but had been sort of a magical negro figure who was then granting special sight to white people um 
And but but I think I guess the other thing is uh, ultimately would have been a, a different, maybe even more interesting film with Keith David were the lead. Uh, you know, if you just uh, change all of the lines, but but uh, we often whenever we say the word working class in America, we almost always mean the white working class and uh, those who are in in among you know working class spaces recognize that they are extremely multiracial and that that the. So I think I think, you know, this sort of conscious um, composition that John Carpenter is working with, um, you know, is both part of his larger legacy of, of, of being very consciously multiracial and urban in his um, in his casting in general. But but here in particular, if he wanted to represent the working class and then made a whole lot of white people uh, forming solidarity with each other, I think uh, it would would not have been true to what he was he was looking for right and and that that the, the working class as a construct is, is a myth we keep telling ourselves versus what the actual demographics are yeah well yeah and you you brought up the we brought up the gala scene a few times and and that sort of idea of the selling out you know and i couldn't help but feel implicated yes. um, in while watching that, because I'm sort of thinking about the way, you know, nonprofits like museums have to throw these big galas um, and how we align ourselves with the mega wealthy um, to survive. Right. And right. and that sort of relationship that we have. And it's like, oh, yeah, this uh, this is hitting a little closer to home. I think that moment. And again, I thinking about when I watched it. 15 years ago or something i don't really even remember that scene like i didn't even remember that moment in the movie and now it really sticks out to me um because i'm just at a different point in my life i guess and and sort of thinking about different things now hey baby i also was thinking of the necropolitics of covid and the universities right where the the the, the universities are both cash strapped enough that they have to charge full tuition and try to bring students back and also uh, you know, send them away <laughs> as soon as clusters develop, which which everybody obviously knew. And and one one thing I like about you know both um, both Hank Willis Thomas's work as well as uh, they live is that it's it's playing with this obviousness, right? They're like the subtext here is obvious. Why aren't you doing anything, right? Or the power relations are obvious here. Why aren't you doing anything? And then you can be like, well, it's hard because we're all complicit. But, but then, then you, you realize, okay, it, you, 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 you realize that it's, it's more uncomfortable than you think. And that's where, where I think the ending is so effective. And two, uh, then the film can realize this, this nice fantasy of you blowing everybody away. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, it is, is again, its own, uh, chimera of, 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 of you know, is that, is that really the fantasy, you know, you, you want to live, live out, like, what are the, what well, you can't think about the consequences about it, of, of that. And, and th there's where, where I think the, um, the social critique of the viewer happens that you, you can both enjoy this violence and are also implicated in it. And, and that, that, that trope continues obviously through the nineties with Tarantino and, um, and other sort of ultra violent films, both playing with the fact that you, uh, you enjoy this spectacle and also that it is, you know, thoroughly, uh, dehumanizing and also problematic fantasy. So I think, you know, uh, Carpenter, Ramey, Cronenberg are all on that particular wavelength in the 80s, um, exploring the 
the depths of human violence and the, the borders of, of what, you know, is humanity per se. And then, you know, in, in, in the case of They Live, seeing the, the thin sheen of, uh, of symbols that we, that we put over it that then we all ideologically accept and say, oh, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> things are fine. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things in our lives that we accept until people make us aware of it and, and point it out to us. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I remember the first time I realized how often I had heard like a girl as as a derogatory statement as a child and growing up and just accepted it and never really questioned it like, oh, that's crazy that we just say you're like 50 percent of the population and everybody knows that that's an insult like that's yeah. an insane idea. Um, and it just like I, when that was pointed out to me, it just like kind of blew my mind because it's just like, oh, this is a really powerful thing that's happening and it can it can be really invisible to us. And that idea of invisibility, I think, is is so, so key to this. And and I think you're right. It's like really similar to what Hank Willis is. Uh, Willis Thomas is doing is is showing us the things that are invisible, but are right in front of us. Right. Well, even even the words, you know, crazy and insane, um, you know, are words that have been mobilized against uh, you know populations right and right. We, we, we use them to say well this is wild and out of right, out right, of control right, right, right. and 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 so there, there's this and i'm not playing gotcha with you i'm just pointing out that that like in the totally. absolute everyday speech that we have uh there is a subtext that is quite violent and and you know infused with with systems of control and we just have to live we just have to push back in the ways we can, but there's a lot of living with it. And I think sure. there's a, there's living with it, you know, in they live and there's definitely, um, living with it too. in Hank Willis Thomas's work. I, I think that, that this is a, a artist who understands the weird universe of brands and corporate marketing mixed with, uh, absurd inequality and violence. Well, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me about They Live. You can visit org slash Hank Willis Thomas to learn about more programs that uh, allow us to lift up our voices, to listen and work towards positive change. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. Special exhibitions right now are Women Breaking Boundaries and Hank Willis Thomas, All Things Being Equal. The museum is currently open during our regular operating hours, but please visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org to register for your free timed admission tickets and to reserve tickets for Hank Willis Thomas, All Things Being Equal. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we also have an Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And like always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 